I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. We actually have a few good stories here about this convergence. We talk a lot about it on the show, uh, this convergence between incumbents and traditional enterprises and up and coming, many of them startup uh, platform marketplace businesses. That's the note here about Group Artemis. There's a couple couple areas there within the sneaker marketplace world I'm going to touch on. But before that, you know, we've talked a lot about Roblox on the show. They have kept us in suspense for months. Roblox has now actually announced they're going to do their direct listing on March 10th. There's not really much new information. We've covered how they updated their revenue numbers when they said they had a material mistake in how they were recording revenue recognition, but their material mistake actually resulted in revenue being revised up, not down. It's like crypto. Everything's just going to the moon with Roblox here. The interesting thing in this uh, in this release uh, about the direct listing is that the founder and CEO, he basically has about, call it a billion dollars on the line. If Roblox stock is trading at $165 a share or higher two years after the listing, he'll get $750,000 uh, stock units issued to him, which at $165 a share, I think is around $130 million grant. Then if the shares are actually trading at 375 or higher five years after the listing, he could get another 2 million uh, shares, which at, at 375 is about $750 million in uh, additional stock compensation. So the guy's going to be made very wealthy with, with this direct listing already. I mean, he's already very wealthy just from being able to have now what is a at least a $30 billion company. It was $8 billion about four months ago when they were initialing, initially circling the wagons on, on doing an IPO, and it's quadrupled in the past three or four months. It's a very strong business, but, you know, um, Everything's up in the stock market. There's just, and platforms are just, you know, leading the charge. So, similarly, every other platform business is also trying to uh, IPO as quickly as they can. Uh, and that would be Patreon. It's not a Patreon. Think patron with an E in it. Patreon. Basically, what, they're, what the news here is, is that they're considering doing an IPO uh, sometime this year. You don't know what Patreon is, YouTube creators, just, you know, content creators in general, or musicians, you know, people, people with a fan base, with a following, right? It's basically a mechanism for those folks to monetize the fan audience. You can have, you know, you can provide exclusive content to people that sign up for a subscription on Patreon. Patreon allows fans to directly support artists by paying monthly subscription fees starting at $5 a month in exchange for content like live stream videos, merchandise, and private performances. Patreon, platform business, uh, has a take rate. The take rate is 5 to 12% uh, of that monthly revenue. And then payment processing, that is, you know, that, that's not as much actual uh, margin to them. Jack is the CEO. Uh, in September, he said it took six years for creators on the service to earn $1 billion and 15 months to earn the second billion. You can kind of see that winner-take-all dynamic. You can see those network effects compounding upon themselves. Uh, the company has raised 
They just raised $90 million recently. They've raised, they raised $90 million last September in 2020. Uh, that gave them about a $1.4 billion valuation. And in total, they've raised about a little over $250 million. It's a very strong business. Uh, I, I think, you know, I think they could be doing more to stand up for creators being censored uh, by platform monopolies. They haven't really done that, though. So that would kind of be my critique just conceptually, right? If, if your whole thing is supporting creators and creators are undergoing unprecedented censorship. We had Peter Saddington on the show uh, last week, big crypto guy, tech entrepreneur. And what he was saying is, you know, he had two shows on YouTube, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, which YouTube banned. Why did, why did this, you know, this was two years ago. This was, you know, before, you know, the, the political climate has become what it is. Uh, but it's because he was talking about crypto and YouTube and crypto. YouTube, you know, kind of wanted to take a conservative stance on crypto and talking about alternative uh, monetary systems. We saw Janet Yellen throw some shade at crypto, uh, bring down the price. People are seeing crypto as a threat. People being in the you know existing financial system, crypto is now at about a trillion dollar of of market cap, basically trillion dollars. Uh, you know, worth of collective coins in Bitcoin and a series of other altcoins. Anyway, I digress. That would be my hope on Patreon here is that they could just take a, a tougher stance on really standing up for creators and creator rights, which which basically don't exist. I'm going to touch on Australia in a second. Uh, and, and when platforms hit monopoly scale, what do they do? They take advantage of their suppliers. Those suppliers on content platforms are large, in, largely in part uh, Patreon's customer base. They have others. You know, you could be, you, you know, you could be a small craftsman on Etsy, for example. But still, you're generally going to be a producer on some form of platform. Much of them content platforms. Might be 70% of their users are on the kind of like content social media side. They do have other, um, you know, producer types. Uh, that that are also using Patreon and um, you know generating income, especially for musicians and and this whole community. I mean, you don't really have a mechanism to generate income, or certainly a huge part of your income. Live performances uh, has has gone away during COVID. They recently passed a hundred million dollars in annualized revenue. That could be really uh, that they are you know they had one quarter where they did twenty five million in revenue, and then they're annualizing that rate forward. And saying, yeah, look, we're on track to do 100 million. I don't know if they've really done 100 million, uh, you know, trailing 12 month, 100 million. But, but still, um, it's a very strong business. And I think they are clearly, you know, the dominant player in their space. Other people on the, on the kind of tertiary of where Patreon is would be Substack. We saw Twitter buy uh, Review, um, like kind of like the JV competitor to Substack. Apparently, Twitter is trying to come to terms with Substack, but couldn't get the deal done. Again, just poor deal execution. So they went for the much smaller, you know, version of Substack. So Substack helping creators that have kind of email audiences monetize that audience, have you know better communication, monetize it, um, all that kind of stuff. So you're seeing a number of these different kind of creator-friendly either SaaS services that then morph into platforms, uh, 
uh, in this arena and Patreon's probably, you know, the leader in that space, but there's a bunch of other things kind of behind it that, that are carving out different niches like a Substack. Um, so very interesting stuff there. Similarly, like Roblox to the moon, Coinbase to the moon. Uh, this is, you know, that classic kind of crypto, crypto, uh, crypto, you know, fanboy slogan here where just prices keep going up and up and up. A lot of things just keep going up and up and up these days. Doesn't make too much sense, but, you know, that's the environment. Anyway, um, Coinbase, where are you? So Coinbase recently did a secondary listing. What that means is for employees that have had stock that's vested, for investors that, you know, have been in the company for a while, you can you can sell those shares in advance of the company being public, right? So you have to sell it to other accredited investors. There's different rules around it. And there are marketplaces that help facilitate these secondary listings. Uh, second market, aptly named, um, is one of the leading players for that. We've talked also about how Carta, Carta uh, SaaS company that grew up as a SaaS company, letting you track your cap table, um, has now also been doing secondary listings. So they're now getting into kind of that platform investment platform arena where, you know, a second market uh, has, has started with marketplace. My prediction is there's a convergence here. The second market, the market, the investment platforms need to move into the SaaS offering and really compete with Carta and try to take that away from them while Carta is then trying to come in on the turf of the marketplaces. We'll see if that happens. But anyway, um, big win that second market got this secondary listing. Second market is a part of NASDAQ's private markets uh, group here, so which is also what Carta is competing with. So anyway, they offered up to 1.8 million shares on second market. They're saying the goal was to help Coinbase determine a reference price for its IPO because they're going to do a direct listing, not an IPO. So they did a few batches of secondary listings here. So they did 75,000 shares sold in January, end of January at $200 a share, which gave Coinbase basically a $50 billion valuation. $50 billion in January. Okay, how does that line up? Founded in 2012, so eight or nine years old, has raised over $500 million. Most recently, uh, raised $300 million in October of 2018, so more than two years ago, an $8 billion valuation. So $8 billion, say two, two and a half years ago, now a little over $50 billion, $54 billion to be exact in the first batch of this secondary listing you know, share sale. Then they did another batch, which went for about $300 a share. So from $200 a share uh, to $300 a share. And then the most recent batch they did, it was $373 a share, which brings their valuation to a touch over $100 billion. Now, they did release some financials as a part of this to you know, provide transparency. The high-level numbers on that are Coinbase generated $141 million of net income on $691 million in revenue for the first nine months of 2020. To put that in comparison, for 2019 whole year, they did $530 million in revenue and lost about $30 million on that. Now, 
Coinbase, what is Coinbase? Coinbase allows you to buy and sell crypto. And you know what they say when, if there's a gold rush, you want to be selling the picks and the shovels. Coinbase is selling a bunch of picks and a bunch of shovels. And they are the ones that are really cashing in. I mean, that's not true. They're not the only ones. There are a lot of people, um, I guess last week, Peter, uh, who've gotten into crypto, you know, many, 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 many years ago, who have made a lot of money on crypto. Coinbase, though, they're selling the shovels, right? They aren't betting on the price of crypto and this and that. What they're doing is helping. They're, they're, they're the, uh, the gateway. They're the gatekeeper. And they help you process your Bitcoin purchases. So um, if you want to buy one Ethereum coin, it's right around $1,500 right now. You want to buy one Ethereum coin, um, it's going to cost you about $20 a fee to buy that coin um, on Coinbase. So it's really not the most efficient thing. If you actually, you know, it's like a little over than a 1% transaction fee. Compare that to what's going on with the Robin Hoods and these discount stock brokerages, even interactive brokers, which is not considered a discount player. Um, interactive brokers might charge me a dollar uh, you know, per trade, which could be way over $1,500. But it's a, it's a dollar as opposed to you know, $20 for $1,500. And as, as your purchase goes up on Coinbase, so does their fee. Maybe not as a percentage, but nominally, uh, that nominal vet fee, that $20, absolutely is going up if you're buying two Ethereum coins for three grand or whatever it is, right? So it's a pretty nice business if you can have, and, and it's not even a marketplace, you know? Well, there, not, okay, let me take that back. There's a marketplace when it comes to uh, the peer-to-peer component, sending and receiving money, right? It's like a, a Venmo, but for crypto. But really where Coinbase is making its money, which is not a platform, it's linear, is on the buying of the crypto, right? Like a Robinhood isn't a platform either in that, it, actually, they don't even have the, the, the peer-to-peer sending idea, right? They're purely just a linear uh, you know, a stock trading app, stock purchasing app, selling app. The platform, the kind of broader exchange is that decentralized Bitcoin or altcoin that, you know, built on the blockchain network, which allows buyers and sellers to transact. But in order to transact, you need to be using a piece of software that's going to help you transact. Coinbase model here, the transactional side, the part that they're monetizing, um, is really the thing driving this hundred billion dollars. Now everyone's getting into a bunch of different things. You can you can get into you know trading on margin. You can get into staking coins, which you know we we need more time for that. But there's a lot of other ways that you can get creative um, in the Bitcoin universe. You know, to me, it reminds me of what the stock market was maybe in the in the late twentieth century. Um, for all you kiddies watching, that means like the 1980s and the 1990s, where you know you had traders, and it was still kind of like the Wild Wild West. You know, the regulation wasn't anywhere nearly what it is today. And so, for those really, you know, for the people on Wall Street or in the financial services industry that want to kind of be out in the unknown, Bitcoin is the place to be. And so, there are a lot of other tools and derivatives and things going on in that universe. But anyway. Coinbase's main business, their bread and butter, is 
facilitating the buying and selling of the coins, the trade. The 691, they're at 691 over three quarters. If you annualize that, like what Patreon did, that means they're annualized at a little over $900 million in revenue. Peg that to uh, their $530 million in revenue, and you basically have about a 75% year-over-year revenue growth rate. And what this article is pointing out is that that's, you know, before, you know, that's up just up until the end of September. And then obviously Q4 of 2020 and till now we've seen just an explosion in kind of, you know, Bitcoin and, and uh, altcoin activity. So the numbers are, are probably actually even higher than that annualized $920 million revenue number. Selling even more picks and shovels there. So, um, so anyway, the rumor is that they're going to be doing a direct listing. They did these secondary listings as a way to kind of test the market and see, hey, how should we do this? Kind of the irony in all of this, or I guess the part that doesn't make total sense to me, is the direct listing is essentially like a blinded auction process, right? So the direct, like they're not raising money in their direct listings. So why do you need to do the secondary listings if you want to figure out how to price your direct listing? The whole way the direct listing process works um, it's like a double Dutch, double Dutch auction or whatever the word is for it. The whole point is that you let the market determine the price of your shares. But, and you're not fundraising in the direct listing. So what does it really matter? So, I, I mean, I don't know if this article, this Axios article, really has kind of the motivations correct behind why they've done these secondary listings. But anyway, the numbers are what the numbers are. And Coinbase fetched over $100 billion valuation, uh, basically, what is that, over 12xing in a little over two years. Honestly, that's a little bit more believable to me, even though what that saying is they have basically, listen to this, a 100 revenue, 100x revenue multiple. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know it's crazy. Uh <laughs> 100x revenue multiple. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the moon. I don't know. They may be on Mars. I think they might have gone past the moon. Coinbase is on Mars. Yep. No, it's official. They've, they've gone past the moon. 100x revenue multiple. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Uh, some other folks wishing they could get 100x revenue multiple. What is Group Artemis? Group Artemis is our example of a traditional enterprise on today's show. Um, Group Artemis owns a bunch of different luxury fashion brands. Group Artemis has been the controlling shareholder of Caring. And then Caring uh, owns a bunch of these different brands. Artemis also owns Christie's. And uh, so Artemis owns Christie's separate from Caring. But Caring owns uh, Balenciaga and a bunch of other brands here. Yeah, Balenciaga, Alexander McQueen, and others. Uh, Balenciaga, why that's really relevant to the conversation. Let me show you these shoes. You know, that's the beauty of having a, a video show. Um, these shoes, here we go. Um, yeah, let's, let's just zoom in on these. Man, okay. 
Here are your Balenciaga shoes. These things on the left, um, the black ones, you know, they're, they look like a very soft material. You know, $800. These, the ones third from the left, these guys right here, um, that's $1,000. Yep, these ones, 1000 bucks. Uh, so, yeah, you know, they're, they're cashing in on the sneaker craze. Uh, and so Caring owns Balenciaga and others. And that is then owned by Group Artemis. And Group Artemis also owns Christie's and others. Okay. So what did Group Artemis do? Well, two things they've done, actually. Both in the sneaker marketplace arena. Let's start with Goat. Goat, if you don't know Goat, uh, they are one of the top two sneaker marketplaces. There's uh, StockX and Goat. StockX might be a little bit ahead of Goat, um, but Goat got $100 million from Foot Locker a few years ago. And, you know, they've all started with sneakers. Goat in recent, uh, you know, over the past maybe year or two have really started to say, hey, we want to go beyond just sneakers. We want to go into a bunch of adjacent verticals. You know, so it's uh, sneaker resales. Uh, so, you know, I say, well, what is sneaker resales? Sneaker resales means these sneakers, um, a lot of these sneakers are so rare you know, they might retail for $500, but you can't get them. So then you got to go on uh, these secondary markets like Goat and StockX, and you got to pay $1,000 to get the sneakers. Now, that's not every uh, uh, line of sneaker. That's just the kind of exclusive lines of sneakers, right? Um, the, the Nikes and uh, Yeez Yeezys were very hot, and then those have kind of fallen off, I guess. Um, I still like the Yeezys and, you know, now the Balenciaga shoes and, and now Dior is doing shoes with, I don't know, Nike and I don't know. I can't keep track of it all, but my friends, uh, they love this stuff. I mean, I like it as an outsider, but I can only, I can only just, I can only track it so much. But anyway, you can spend a lot of money real quick on these sites and that uh, customer base um, this ultra high-end kind of consumer, these marketplaces have done phenomenally well in COVID uh, because generally these are very affluent consumers. They have a lot of disposable income. They have been generally less negatively affected by COVID and have just been locked in there, you know, uh, locked down and um, have been buying a bunch of stuff. So we've actually seen these kind of alternative uh, luxury high-end marketplaces like Goat and StockX really do well in COVID. They raised $100 million last September at a $1.75 billion valuation. And now what Artemis is doing is they're following on. They have not disclosed how much they followed on for, but before this investment, right, which we don't know how much they invested, Goat had raised about $290 million. So now Artemis is, is following on to the to this valuation to the Series E funding, I would imagine Artemis got the same terms, and they're just doing a follow-on here. I would imagine the valuation hasn't gone up, but you know Artemis is saying, "Hey, if we're coming in, we'll follow on. You know, maybe we'll put in fifty or a hundred million dollars, something like that." Not confirmed, but I'm just you know that would kind of be directionally where I would I'd say it's got to be at least fifty million dollars. Why is this significant? Well, one, you are seeing. Now, two traditional enterprises get involved in GOAT, one being um, uh, Foot Locker and the other now being Group Artemis in, in very big ways, right? 
Foot Locker, $100 million. Uh, they did that back in uh, February of 2019 at a $500 million valuation. I was, I was prompting the CEO to put money in. Um, so they've effectively tripled that at least. We also have news that First Dibs, which is kind of, I, I guess, the number three. You know, they do sneakers and they do art and they do other products also, but it's somewhat similar in this space. Um, they're looking to do an IPO at around a billion dollar valuation. So you can see there, go 1.75 and it's not even, you know, the obviously all, all these IPO valuations are just very, very high. So uh, First Dibs is, is definitely, you know, smaller than GOAT and StockX. You can see that here. But who else invested in uh, First Dibs? Group Artemis did. Group Artemis, which controls Gucci, owner of Caring. So backed by right, the New York-based company raised $76 million in 2019. From who? T. Rowe Price and Group Artemis. Literally like the same month that Goat pulled down $100 million from Foot Locker, First Dibs got $80 million from, it was like Allen and Company, Benchmark, big time platform investor, uh, and Group Artemis, and actually the founder and CEO of Group Artemis, uh, Pinot is the guy's name. So, I mean, to me, this news, well, not this news, but, you know, this, the IPO news makes sense when you say, oh, I mean, these guys need cash. They got an IPO. They're a third place marketplace. That's not a good place to be in. Don't want to be third. Uh, third is basically last. Not as bad as last, but it's pretty bad. Winner take all markets. These guys, first dibs, trying to go public ASAP. They can't raise any more money from their investors. Why? Because the investors just put their money into their competitor. Yeah, not so good. That said, you know, the writing should have been on the wall here because Goat had been partnering with uh, caring brands like Balenciaga for a while now, right? Which is also odd. Why would you ever let that happen or why or how would that, you know, that, that, so, you know, this is not coming as a surprise to the first dibs guys or the goat guys. I mean, you could, you could definitely smell this in the water that Artemis is, you know, they're, they're playing both sides or they're playing multiple sides. Or they're, they're not sure. Maybe they weren't happy with first dibs, but it's not like this stuff just happened in the past few months. This has been a long time coming because here's an article from January, 2020. And this is when goat, signed uh, Kuz from the Lakers to be a brand ambassador. And an example here, you say, oh, well, what does, what does Caring get out of being a strategic investor in, um, you know, in and now two of these marketplaces? So Kuz, he has an endorsement deal with Puma, but this deal with Goat will allow him to wear other luxury labels from the Caring Group such as Balenciaga and Gucci. And this was before 
A group Artemis had even put money into GOAT. They had had a strategic partnership uh, between those two companies. So, um, you know, it's if you think about it and you take a step back and you say, why would manufacturers, why would these luxury brands actually want to invest and take a stake in these businesses as opposed to just being a partner? It just is going to give you more control more say, more preferential treatment, which can happen in a variety of ways, particularly particularly in these luxury markets. When you have, you know, maybe you don't have a board seat, but maybe you are a board observer, you, you know, you have, um, you're basically just at the tip of the spear. Think about it as being at the tip of the spear to figure out how to best utilize a new distribution channel. And that distribution channel is digital. Right. And so if you're saying, hey, stores, COVID, right, um, are one distribution channel, but then there's this new thing called apps and websites, not that new anymore. It's 2021, gang. Um, and marketplaces are the dominant model in e commerce. I think that's also pretty clear. We've seen Richemont uh, do an about face from Uxnet a Porte and now going heavy into Farfetch. They've also gone into a watch marketplace called Watchfinder. So it's now you're seeing Artemis do this. You're seeing Richemont do this. You know, it is time that these the, the luxury manufacturers are saying, wow, <laughs> uh, we don't want Amazon to win, Amazon luxury. Um, we don't want the tech monopoly to win. We want to support the up and coming uh, marketplaces. Um, even if it's a pseudo platform conglomerate like Farfetch, Farfetch winning, GOAT winning, um, is a hell of a lot better future for luxury uh, 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 manufacturers than it is for Amazon and Am- Amazon luxury to win. And that's why you see now Group Artemis saying, yeah, first dibs, well, you're number three. Yeah, I can't, I can't just tie my future to you, first dibs. I got to go in on GOAT. I got to secure my future um, in the digital economy, which, oh, by the way, is just controlled by marketplaces. So I love this deal. Uh, took Group Artemis a little bit of money to figure out who the right bet is. Um, fortunately, uh, Dick, the CEO over at Foot Locker, put, put money in early into GOAT. Um, but you want to go number one or number two. That's what you want to do. Number one or number two. Don't invest in the number three. Not a good idea. Free advice. Um, okay. Last but not least, can't forget about Tech Monopoly of the Day. Facebook. Um, oh, actually, I forgot to even mention this. So we had Peter Saddington on the show, and he was talking about library. Man, this thing is cool. Um, so library, it's such a cool company. I want to, I want to get him on the show. Um, startup company. Look at this. Uh, library does to publishing what Bitcoin did to money. So, you know, I've talked about, you know, how, I, how I'd wish that Patreon would take um, a tougher stance protecting creators from being silenced by tech monopolies like, well, every single one of them, frankly. Um, so what Library is doing here is decentralizing video, right? Where Peter is saying, yeah, you know, I had hundreds of thousands of subscribers. I created thousands of videos and then YouTube just banned that stuff because crypto was out of vogue two years ago and we were getting a lot of traction and boom, our channel's just gone. Videos gone. Subs gone. 
library helps combat that. This would actually be really interesting to me if if uh, if Patreon went in this direction or or bought this company. I don't think they will because I I don't think they want to kind of wade into these waters. Um, seems like they've kind of sidestepped some of this, but it is a huge issue for creators. And I would love to see. I mean, what library is doing here? I love to see this. I love to see more of these kind of platforms that help creators take a stance to protect freedom of speech for creators. Hmm. It doesn't seem that far afield, does it? But it is somewhat uh, contentious in today's um, Orwellian environment. Anyway, so we, the integration is super easy, super easy. You know, we're using Rumble, but to get our videos up on, so then they have, um, to get our videos imported into library from YouTube. I mean, they got the API, boom, this thing was a thing of beauty. And now you can go to Odyssey, which is their video player site, which is built, you know, that's the application built on top of the decentralized blockchain to store all of the video content. And look at this, all of our videos, I, I don't know if it's all, we've got 404 videos in here right now. It took uh, not much time at all. It was very seamless. And so, um, you know, here we are. We got our page, Odyssey uh, at Applico. And uh, we already got a couple followers. Nice. Love to see that gang. And um, yeah, I mean, we're going to be, you know, I want to try and put more stuff on here or more unique stuff on here and help differentiate away from the tech monopolies that, that are YouTube and others. So anyway, this is awesome. Um, Odyssey and library, one in the same, uh, you know, same company, two different kind of applications there. So anyway, here's the Facebook news. So this Australian news app is now number one on the app store, beating Facebook in downloads. It's called ABC the most trusted news source. But this is not um, ABC owned by Disney. This is a homegrown Australian news app uh, called ABC on the top of the app store in Australia um, as of uh, this past week. And, and oh, so yeah, here it is. Uh, the Australia Broadcasting Company, homegrown app from the Australia Broadcasting Company, um, has topped the iOS download charts in Australia outpacing Facebook. That's important for one big reason. Facebook just banned news from appearing on Australian news feeds in response to a law that would require the social giant to pay for news. And what I predicted is that this would backfire for Facebook. This stance that they were taking, because Google capitulated and came to the table and said, hey, we'll negotiate you know, with the news uh, organizations in Australia, um, because the Australian government did the right thing and forced the tech monopolies to the table. I knew Google Cave. I called it on Australian BBC News, not BBC, uh, Australian Bloomberg News, uh, that Google would capitulate because Sundar didn't have it in him. I was right there. And then uh, what I was saying uh, last week is that Facebook and Google, they, they should have done this. They should have walked away from news or they should have shut down. It's just like having a union in your company. You shut it down. Don't allow it. Um, Google has now allowed both. They've allowed a union and they've allowed Australia to um, strong arm them to pay creators. Very good for the incumbents being the media organizations, not good for the monopoly that is Google. 
or Facebook, because now Facebook and Google are split. You need to have a united front when you're dealing with this kind of stuff. They didn't. We've seen, ironically, Facebook and Google um, illegally uh, work together on Project Jedi, which was their advertising project to, to basically have a duopoly in digital advertising. I think at least 15 states in the United States are suing them right now around Project Jedi and that being antitrust, uh, you know, two, two of the biggest digital advertising juggernauts actually entering into an agreement to co- cooperate to, to, with each other to keep other advertising competitors out. Can't make this stuff up. Anyway, Facebook out on its own island banned all of the news in their app, said it's not going to turn out well for Facebook. Right stance, if you can get Google to come along with you. They didn't. Then they they'd still just went ultra hard line on this. Bad decision. Um, and now you're seeing Australians ticked off. Rightly so. Um, and and, and that, that dichotomy between Facebook's uh, route and Google's route, where Google actually... Um, you know, suffers more injury. It, it's really, it's inconsequential if Facebook allows this to happen or not. Facebook just didn't want to, you know, Facebook has a founder, CEO, Zuckerberg, and he doesn't want to be bossed around. This is the interesting thing. Um, these guys don't know what it's like to be bossed around anymore. When you're one of the richest people in the world, you don't get bossed around. You boss other people around. That's how it works. Um, and you boss them around or you pay them off and then you boss them around, but you get your way. 99 or 999 times out of a thousand, you get your way. And when you don't get your way, you're pretty not happy about it. Zuckerberg is pretty not happy about what's happened in Australia. And this thing, they, they're going to have to do an about face here because um, you are now seeing the market. You're seeing... When you have the government take that first salvo to help level the playing field, right, between the tech monopolies um, and basically everyone else. Um, You know, we've talked a lot about Australia's stance, Poland's stance, uh, what I hope the EU more broadly will adopt to protect who? Creators. What I'm talking about with Patreon, I'm talking about with Library and Odyssey. Protecting creators, producers. That's where the platforms exert their pressure. That's who they put their thumb down on first. It's not the consumer, it's the producers. Uh, you got to protect the producers, the suppliers. And we saw Australia do that. We saw Google come to the table. And then we saw Facebook back away. And now you're seeing the private market, this Australia broadcasting company news app, jump to the top of the download list. And everyone's saying, I'm out of here, Facebook. Maybe they don't leave Facebook. But they certainly are adopting an alternative solution. And, and so that regulation is helping do two things. One, protect the producers and help allow private enterprise to compete. Right? Um, because the Australian government isn't saying that the Australia Broadcasting Company has to pay um, you know, increased fees to the news media creators because it's just a, you know, relative to Google or Facebook, they rightly so don't deserve the ire of the, of, of the Australian government. They don't have extreme leverage when negotiating uh, prices and rates to pay 
creators like monopolies do. And that's kind of what a lot of people's stance has been. I'll just show this one last thing on this point. Um, where, you know, the crazy kind of tech mainstream media, you know, look at this, the information. Australia kerfuffle wins Facebook friends. It was like, what? What? What what did they? And then they quoted these two unknown websites that I've never heard of that wrote articles in support of Facebook uh, banning news content in Australia. I mean, it's completely absurd. And yeah, I just love what Australia is doing on this right now. So uh, keep it up down there. That's it. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining, and I'll talk to you soon.